Well, welcome. Glad that you're uh, choosing to celebrate Easter here with us. I would invite you to open up your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, there's a Bible in front of you in the little seat right there. That's your gift. You'd be welcome to take that home with you today. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 10, verse 45. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is in the New Testament. And we'll be looking at one verse this morning and the whole Bible at the same time. You'll see what I mean in a second. While you're turning there, uh, everyone around this time of year seems to have eggs on their mind. Anyone have eggs for breakfast? Okay, I had every intention to, but ran out of time. Quick little Easter riddle for you. Why did the Easter egg hide? Because he was a little chicken. All right, enough of that. Mark 10 is where you should be. And if you're new to, to Neighborhood Bible Church, I'm going to give you a special welcome and just say glad that you're here. Uh, many of us in this room have been walking through for a series of weeks now, looking at some of the biggest questions that you should ask when investigating Christianity. We've said this about Christianity or any religion or spiritual faith system at all, is that you ought to approach it the same way that you would approach buying a used car. You wouldn't walk up to a used car and just assume everything being told to you is true. In fact, the value of any religion, of any world system of belief has one thing in common, and that is this. Is it true? Right? So I could, as a religion, I could promise you all kinds of things, and I don't base my value on whether that's good or bad based on how good the reward is, but whether or not it's true. Otherwise, it's really kind of a, a, a throwaway, and that's how we've approached uh, this series. Here are some of the things we've looked at. Is it more reasonable to believe in God or not? And we just looked at science, not even in the Bible. We just looked at, at, at the science of things, at what we see, of what we observe around, and using logic and using what we observe, and we've, we've looked at that. Also, questions like this, is the Bible trustworthy? Many people in the world say they have a holy book that is trustworthy. It's good to come to the, to the Bible and ask that question of it. And it should be able to produce answers. Is the Bible trustworthy? We spent several weeks on that. Finally, we also looked at, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Uh, Christianity hinges on that being true. That isn't true, and this whole thing falls apart. The Bible itself says this, that if Jesus Christ did not raise, raise again, then those of us sitting in church today are most to be pitied of all people. You know why? We're trading in some pleasures in this life in hopes that we're going to rise again just like Jesus did. If that's not true, we're missing out on this life. So the Bible's very frank about these things, and we looked at those and, and walked into many of them. If you are interested, you can join us in that series by traveling back in time via our podcast. We've podcast all of our messages, so you can go to our website, and you can just kind of listen to some of these uh, in the comfort of your own iPod and just listen and dialogue with that and investigate it for yourself. And I would, I would invite you to do that if you've never done that before. At sunrise today, I don't know if you were awake for sunrise, but I was, and uh, last service was our sunrise service at 9 o'clock, and we celebrated Hawaiian time. So in, in Hawaii, it was just starting to be sunrise. Now we're kind of... I don't know where we are. We're somewhere in the middle of the Pacific sunrise service, but that's what we're doing right now. But I was there at sunrise watching the sun come out of my, of my bay window, and it was a beautiful scene. And I just thought about the fact that right now there are millions of Christians around the world who are celebrating this morning, unique to all other mornings of the year, as, as they look back and remember the risen Jesus Christ who conquered the grave. And also they're looking forward to the promised return. We're going to sing about this in a couple of minutes, but the promised return where one day this present darkness that we're walking in is going to be shattered. 
by the light of Christ coming back for his own, just like a sunrise is. And yet with that, as I sat there and pondered that, I also thought, you know, there's many people, though, for whom Easter is a big cloud of mystery. It has something to do with eggs and bunnies and Cadbury and hunting, and we don't know all that's happening in the grass, Easter egg stuff that gets in the candy, all that kind of thing. And so what I thought I would do is this. I wanted to take the Easter story. I'd be remiss to not take this morning and just, and just share the Easter story, but I'm going to do it really condensed. I'm going to take you from Genesis to Revelation in a few short minutes, okay? Here's what I believe. I believe that the Bible is painting the large story that we're all a part of. And that all of our favorite movies, all of our favorite novels, all of our favorite stories actually borrow from that. You'll see kind of a common theme rolling through these. Some of my favorite movies are the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and a few other people agree with me that that's a good movie. I don't know. But in that movie, it's just as an example, but think of your favorite movie. Here's what often happens in some of the epics. Life was really, really good. The Shire, right? And then something awful happened. And then people had to go on a battle or on a quest of some sort to right that and to restore things. But they can't do it on their own. And as they're on their way, at just the last moment, a hero arrives. And the hero arrives to save the day and to restore all that is good. And that's often how the epics end, is that hope has been restored, right? That story is a Bible story. That's a biblical story. It's actually the story we find ourselves in. And that's why I think we resonate with that story so well. Here's the Easter story in a nutshell. God creates the whole world and humanity. Sin enters, shattering the relationship between a holy God and people who've now wronged him. God pursues rebellious people and provides for them, giving them the law. That would be the Ten Commandments. You've probably heard about that. For their good and for his glory. And he provides a way for atoning for sin, for dealing with this sin that is going on between them. But everything that you read, this is mostly Old Testament that I'm talking about right now. Everything that you read in that is pointing ahead. It's pointing toward a day when a Savior is going to come. Let me sum up the Old Testament with some big picture ideas. There's the temple. And there's priests, and there's sacrifice, and there's deliverance, and there's feasts and festivals. And if you read, what you see is all those things are actually a shadow of the thing to come. The thing to come is going to be a Savior, a Messiah, who's going to save the whole world and put right that which sin made wrong and establish forever an eternal kingdom of God. That Savior, that Messiah, is Jesus Christ. We celebrate the remarkable events surrounding his birth at Christmas time. He lived a sinless life. He was on a mission from God to save the people from their sins, dying on a cross as part of that mission, and rising three days later from the dead. That's the Easter story in a nutshell. If you take the Old Testament, which is about two-thirds of the Bible, What you'll see is the Old Testament is all about Jesus. It points ahead to this Messiah, this promised one. A little snippet of that is Isaiah 53, 5, which says this, But he, talking about this future prophesied Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Now, they didn't understand all the details of that. But imagine, in the days following the resurrection reading that verse and having that verse come to mind and realizing a whole new layer of truth that just unfolded before your eyes in human history. Amazing. 
The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are four stories all accounting of the same life, Jesus Christ, from four different perspectives. But those are looking at the the life and the ministry and the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. One of the absolute treasures that the four Gospels give us is that they record the actual words of Jesus. And when you hear the words of Jesus, what you get to hear is you get to hear how he prayed and what he prayed for, what he taught and encouraged and what he rebuked and steered you away from, how he interacted with people. And that's one of the huge gifts about the Gospels. Clearly, the Gospels are about Jesus. The rest of the New Testament is actually now looking back on the life of Jesus Christ and interpreting it and showing for it what the meaning of his life was all about. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, actually looks forward and really points ahead, as as do other places, to his imminent promised return. So what you see is Genesis through Revelation, it's all about Jesus. I'm in the middle of Leviticus right now. If you've ever read Leviticus, here's what you understand. You realize this sounds a little bit like a cross between Bobby Flay, the uh, chef, and Bear Grylls, the outdoorsman who does crazy things with dead carcasses. But there's a whole sacrificial system that's being talked about. And I'm sitting here reading. And because I know the end of the story, because I've read ahead and I understand how Jesus fulfills these different things, I can see written all over the temple and the priest and the sacrificial system, pointers to what I now in reverse get to see with greater clarity. It's amazing. This morning, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to slow down a little bit. And we're going to look at just a few things. We're going to take one sentence of Jesus and we're going to just look at a few different parts because it highlights his life very, very well. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, is where we're going to be looking. Now, The story doesn't really start well, and that's because the weekend before the resurrection didn't start well for Jesus either. And we're going to look at at some of those issues. I wonder when the last time it was that you were furious. I mean, really, really mad. I'm not going to ask you to confess that or share the details today. You can do that over lunch. But when was the last time you were really, really mad? What were the circumstances? What went on? What was said? Some of you have been following a news story this past week, and this hits particularly close to home for some people in our church because um, they are friends with this girl that you see on the screen right here. Sierra, um, I haven't read anything this morning, but I was reading leading up to yesterday about another search that was going on for Sierra, who's been missing from Sobrato High now for a good deal of time. This poster makes you sad, yes, but doesn't it make you anger, uh, angry to see this? To see this and think about what it is to have a 15-year-old life stolen angers you. It does something to you. Now, I don't want to minimize her case in any way, shape, or form, but I want to lift our eyes today to realize that her story is being played out around the world today in giant numbers. There's an organization called Not For Sale. And that image says it all. It's a picture of a person and the words not for sale slapped in front of her. We get the message, don't we? It's a group that is basically modern day abolitionists seeking for the freedom of slaves. Now I look at that and you think, man, maybe that's something that is in pocket communities. Here's the reality. There are more slaves today, this morning, than at any other time in human history right now. 
as I began to get to know these guys and what they're doing is about six months ago, I began to read some of the website stuff that they have and some of the, of the data and stories that's coming out of some of the things that, that God is doing through these activists. And what I was shocked and horrified to see is this isn't a Cambodian problem. This is an American problem. This isn't just in, in dark places, in dark corners. This is in our county where people are being tried, convicted, and sentenced because they are enslaving people. That ought to create an outrage in all of us. Now, let me bring it back to Sierra for a second because sometimes the number 27 million, which is the number they estimate of slaves in the world right now, is so daunting that we can't get our head around it, but we can get our head around Sierra leaving for school in the morning and never returning. What if a ransom could be obtained for Sierra? I think there are some positives and negatives that come along with this. On the positive side, uh, we would have a daughter, a friend, um, a life spared. She would be home safe and sound. There's a negative side to to it, though, as well. Here's what it is. It leaves the guilty free to hurt again. Not only that, but if you were to pay a ransom right now and they were to get away with it, it would not only embolden them, but it would embolden other people to perpetrate evil from that. Do you see that? Not only that, but the guilty would be unpunished. Not only that, but the healing and fear that is that has gone on with this girl is not addressed in a ransom note. So while there's some positives, there's a part to that that leaves us wanting. When you think about what's just, what is justice in this situation? What should be done to someone who steals the life of a 15-year-old? Proverbs 29, 26 says this, Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. Try as they might, every nation, every government system throughout all of history gets this wrong. Now, they get it right on some level. And God's put government in our midst for our good. But no government gets this right and perfect. There's much disagreement if I were to poll you and say, what should be done to this person? There's probably much disagreement there, but I would bet there's total agreement that something must be done if we were to catch uh, the, the ones who allegedly abducted this girl. There's something that began in the imagination of God and in the character of God, and he designed it into every human being who's ever walked the face of this earth. It's that sense of justice. By design, that is in every single one of you this morning. It varies. We can argue all of that, but it's there. And it's from God's own character. Easter is all about justice. Now, I know some of you say, I thought Easter was about mercy and about love, and it is. But here's the catch. If you don't get the justice part of the Easter story, the mercy part, the love part, the gift part of Easter falls totally flat. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the justice part and the mercy part of the Easter story this morning. Jesus did something that was unique to anyone else. He walked this earth making verifiable 
truth claims about future events. To say it another way, he made predictions about what was going to happen that could either be shown to be true or shown to be false. We've had a few modern-day people that have done this as well, and they've fallen really flat, much to their shame. And rightfully so. It's been all over the news headlines. Jesus made truth statements that could be shown to be true or false as time marched on. But not only did he predict future events, but he actually attached meaning to future events, telling us what was actually going on. Here's what I mean by that. Anyone could predict that they're going to die young. I might have a foreboding sense that I'm going to die before I reach my 50s, and I might lead a lifestyle, a revolutionary lifestyle with the government authorities that's going to kind of help carry that out. But think about this. I couldn't predict what's going to happen after my death, and I certainly couldn't predict with any clarity, what my death would mean for millions of people 2,000 years later because I don't know that. The only one who did that is Jesus Christ, who not only predicted the events of his death, but predicted what they would mean for people, what it would accomplish when he died on the cross. Mark 10.45, one verse this morning, it says this, For even the Son of Man, this is Jesus talking, that was one of the phrases he used about himself. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I'm going to take this phrase, or this sentence, and just break it up a little bit, and we're going to see some different things. The first is that the Son of Man came. This shows us a little bit about the nature of Jesus Christ. He came, meaning that he is otherworldly. He actually was sent here as a missionary on a mission from God. John chapter 1, the gospel, uh, the fourth gospel, um, actually starts off describing, elevating Jesus Christ, this one that he had walked with in bodily form for, for about three years. And he says that he's the pre-existing one. He elevates him to a place of the Godhead because of the things that he had seen and that he had heard. Colossians 1 sums it up best possibly when it says this, All things are created for him, or through him and for him. Talking about Jesus Christ. The nature of Jesus Christ is altogether different than anyone we've met before. Jesus claimed, like many, many other people, to be on a mission from God. That's not what is unique about Jesus. Many people claim to be on a mission from God. I've met several people, literally, who said I'm on a mission from God. Some have claimed to be God. I don't mean this even lightly, but many of them I've talked to in doing that are wandering the streets at night. Some in San Francisco, some a couple of miles from here. So claiming to be God, claiming to be on a mission from God, claiming to speak for God is not unique. That's not what's distinct about Jesus Christ. Here's what's distinct about it is that he repeatedly backed up those claims with signs. If you are buying a used car, the used car salesmen say this is a fantastic deal. It's got a great engine. It runs well. It's well put together. You're kind of kicking the tires. You're wondering, do I believe this guy or not? What you want from that person is a sign. What you want is you want some indication that what he's telling you is the truth. Or else you'd be taken for a fool to believe it. Jesus repeatedly gave signs, miracles, healings, predictions. They all pointed the way. They were like billboards pointing the way to say, this really is a message from God. 
This really is a messenger and is, in fact, God. Here's the culminating giant billboard, is that he rose after being dead. That utterly transforms the disciples. It utterly transforms his own family who now fall down and worship him. And the book of Acts is all about what goes on from those days forward with people who've been transformed by seeing the risen Jesus Christ. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve is the next part. I want you to think of any other king, leader, ruler, president, who does and says the things that Jesus does. If you've tracked the news at all, this last year has been a phenomenal time in human history, hasn't it? The Middle East. People who were secure. I saw an image the other day of all these rulers that are being taken out in the Middle East. And here they are smugly sitting in this group shot. Some who'd been in in power for decades. They thought their power would go on for eternity. Those who were being oppressed under them probably thought they're going to go on for eternity. There's no hope of change. Now, the change hasn't always been great. It's a world of turmoil right now. But it's fascinating to see these different leaders and to superimpose them upon Jesus Christ, the servant king. Think of our own politicians. Think of anyone you know who's in power. And think if they line up with the kinds of things Jesus did. The way that he came to earth. You're God. You can do it any way you want. How do you do it? I promise you. Most of us, we do it with a lot more fanfare than Jesus did. A podunk town, uh, a stable, a smelly stable, a barn, growing up in relative obscurity, having a fairly short window of three and a half year public ministry as an adult. He was acting so strange for being a revolutionary king that those around him actually wanted to forcibly take him and make him king. They basically were saying this, you're doing this all wrong, okay? I mean, we know this from our politics, right? You have to peak at the right time. You have to grow your fan base. You've got to keep rising and ruling more and more. What was Jesus doing? He was actually getting more and more humble. And instead of rising, he was, he was, he was getting lower. He was too meek. So they wanted to forcibly say, look, let us help you with this whole revolutionary king idea. And they wanted to actually forcibly make him their king. How about the disciples? When Jesus was arrested, falsely accused, condemned in a farce trial, and then hung on a tree, the disciples questioned everything that they had seen and heard. They actually didn't know it, but they were fulfilling an ancient prophecy that said this, that when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. That's exactly what happened. Some of his biggest proponents, some of his closest confidants, those who had been there in some miraculous moments, scattered ran. They were confused. Why? Because the servant king was ushering in a kingdom unlike anything that they'd ever seen or even dreamt up here on earth. And since that time till today, we've never seen anything like it. We've never seen any world leader, ruler, king act anywhere near what Jesus Christ did. But Jesus didn't come to simply show us the way, but to actually be the way. Look at the next part of the verse. The next part of the verse says this, and to give his life. Giving of his life is the way of Jesus Christ. Giving of your life is the way of a Jesus follower, of a disciple. We're called to do that because that's what Jesus came and did. His method was to give his life, not just figuratively, 
or metaphorically, but he actually gave his life. He gave his life in exchange for our sin. He took on our sin and gave us the righteousness that he possessed. Now, lest we gloss over sin, unless we kind of make light of it and say, well, I've done a few bad things, I want you to watch this short video, and um, it does a good job of portraying just the weight of the cross. The cross accomplished exactly what Jesus told us the cross would accomplish. Ephesians 1.7, one of those epistles, one of those letters that's now looking back on what went on in those days, says this, He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son and forgave our sins. could walk through the Scriptures and find many other things, but think about that. The death of Jesus Christ accomplished our freedom and our forgiveness. And if you're like me, you watched the early parts of that video and thought, well, I haven't committed those big atrocities. And then it winds itself down to where at some point you see yourself in that video. You see the life that has gone wrong, that which is, is not restored yet. And it points to the need for a Savior. One of the old hymn writers said it this way, In that old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For it was on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. Don't miss how much forgiveness and pardon affect every single day of your life. So if we think about this justice, and we think that applies just to the courtroom, or just in those big cases out there of dark evil, let me say this, that the gospel, the good news, the justice that's provided for on the cross affects our everyday life. It will affect your dinner table tonight. This week I came home from lunch and what started off uh this week wow there's still liquid in there um as a coffee mug uh that was in pretty good shape um actually turned into this and to kind of help you see it i've, I've got a picture here for you so you can look at the screen um this is a 15 year old coffee mug from starbucks and i've used it for a long time and i set it uh down and as i backed away to leave um it met my jeep and uh, this is what happens. This is what it looks like, in case you're wondering, when a stainless steel coffee mug meets the tire of a Jeep. Now, the reason I bring that up is this. We look at a coffee mug like that, and, and if you think about it, if, if, if you think about personifying that, okay, that has been a faithful friend to me. It's done everything I've asked of it. It really has. Um, I, it's held my coffee. It's kept it relatively hot for the most part. It's mostly kept it from spilling. It's done a good job, okay? What do I do in return? For the most part, I wash it. I keep it clean. I talk to it once in a while, but we don't talk about that much. And then one day, I set it on the hood of my Jeep. And I go in, and I get distracted, and I come home, and I leave in a bit of a hurry, and I run over the thing. And in essence, I kill it. It'll never be used as a coffee mug again, okay? It's a sad day. If... If that coffee mug is, is a relationship in my life, though, and you're that coffee mug, and you've been run over because of someone's thoughtlessness and forgetfulness, what do you feel as a coffee mug toward me? Could be a range of things, right? Could be a little bit of bitterness. I mean, after all I've done for you, Dave. 
and now this. You know, I mean, those are the kinds of things you would say if you were that coffee mug. You would want me to pay for my forgetfulness. You would look at me and say, there's, there's a stupidity here, and I'm the one who, who suffered for it. Now bring that into relationships. There are people that you have unknowingly and unwittingly and forgetfully injured. And if we could see the inside of us, our soul might look like that coffee cup a little bit. And how hollow it feels when you say, I'm really, really sorry. I just forgot you were sitting on my hood. I apologize for running over you. I can't ever restore the coffee mug back to its shape. I can't ever go back and do that. Here's the power of a Christian in relationship with other human beings because of a loving Father who's forgiven us. We look at God's great forgiveness of us. And we say that was done undeserved. I was the one who had offended you, God, and yet undeservedly you forgave me. And when I look at someone who wrongs me, Ben is a close friend of mine and a co-worker. I've wronged him and he's wronged me. When Ben wrongs me and I get welled up in me, this God-given sense of justice that says, someone has to pay for that wrong. Here's the response of a Christian. Catch this. Someone already has. That's why we celebrate the cross. Every sin, every injustice has been taken. The poison of that sin has been poured into the Son of God. That's the very reason that He came to this earth, is to absorb that, is to take that on Himself. And in exchange, give us life. In exchange... Give us a new way of relating to one another. Does that mean that the hurt and the scars of life immediately go away? You talk to the Christians in the room here today if you're not one. Talk to them. They don't go away. Is there healing? Is there grace as we walk through that? Absolutely. But it's a whole new way of relating, not just to God, but to one another as well. Look at the next part. As a ransom. What happened to Satan when Jesus died on the cross was a crushing defeat, and it wasn't a payoff. If it was a payoff, it would be a little bit like that ransom story I mentioned with Sierra. We would be left hollow with that, saying, wait a minute, so Satan gets off scot-free for tormenting people, for tempting people, for lying to people, for stealing from people, killing people. No, not at all. In fact, the focus of the, of, the random, or of the ransom language is actually on the payment price, that it was the one for the many, and also on the result of it, which is that it obtains freedom for the captives. If you look at the Bible and wonder what, what justice then is satisfied on the cross, the justice, the payment actually is against the wrath of God, the just and holy wrath of God on the punishment of sin. And that's what's going on in the cross. We get released from final judgment. Jesus takes the punishment. I'm going to invite the band up just now, and I want them to sing for you some, some biblical truth. Sometimes receiving biblical truth in song is, is so much more powerful. As they come up, I want you to listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus, he too, shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, 
and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now, if you imagine a fly coming and landing on your arm later on today, and later on a bee comes and lands on your other arm, there's a different response there, isn't it? Right? What's the difference? You know this. One can hurt you, right? I mean, the one might kind of well up annoyance in you. It bugs you. That's why it's called a bug, I suppose. The other one wells up fear. And you say, wow, for some of you, it's deadly because you're allergic. The Bible says this, that Jesus took the sting of death away. What if that bee had no stinger and you knew that? Wouldn't it change the way that it is when a bee lands on your arm? Of course it would. Now, I don't know if it, it's fair to say that it turns death into just a mere annoyance like the fly, but it, but it changes the whole picture. We're going to sing a song right now called Jesus Lives, talking about this stinger being removed. just want to look at these last two words. Jesus came and gave his life as a ransom for many. Implied in the term for many is that not all will be saved. Not a hugely popular message in our day and age. Many implies that there's an in and there's an out, and the question then becomes, well, who's going to be saved? Jesus repeatedly laid it out very crystal clear. He said, those who believe in me. The way God made passage out of the danger of the wrath against sin is a person. His invitation to sinners is quite simple. It's come. It's an open invitation. In fact, not only is it an open invitation, but he's actually left this church and his church, his disciples around the world, and they have a mission. The mission is go invite people into this kingdom from far and wide. He actually even warns that those who are close to God seemingly, those who are religious types, those who look like they have it all together, they might actually be the ones who are the first to reject it and get mad at you. Those living under the bridge, those who are on the outskirts of society, those who recognize their deep, deep need for a Savior, they might jump at this and be the first in line. We've seen that taking place now for 2,000 years as we've just echoed the words of Christ. Come. My invitation to you today is to come, to receive Jesus Christ, to believe on His name. The invitation really is an invitation to freedom. Yes, it's freedom from slavery of sin. Yes, it's freedom from the fear of death. But it's also freedom from your past hurt and mistakes. It's freedom from the current tyranny of living under fear and the current struggles that we have. doesn't mean your struggles go away as a Christian. Don't hear me say that. It also is a freedom from future anxiety. The invitation of Jesus to come is an invitation for friendship. It's not a one-time thing and then He abandons you. He walks with you. It's also an invitation for truth and meaning and purpose. And it's also an invitation to the abundant eternal life that Jesus so powerfully lived and then proclaimed. One of Jesus' favorite ways to teach was to tell stories. And in Luke 15, He actually tells Three stories that as you, as you pull back and start to look at it, you realize, wow, that's three parts of kind of one story. Here it is. The first story is about a shepherd and he has a hundred sheep and one of those sheep goes wandering off as sheep are prone to do. It says that the shepherd leaves the 99 and he goes off in search 
of that sheep. And he finds the sheep. And when he finds the sheep, he goes and he tells his neighbors of his great joy at finding the sheep. The second story is the story of a woman. The woman has lost a coin. And she searches diligently and carefully for it all through her house, sweeping and lifting furniture, trying to find the coin. When she finds the coin, she tells her neighbors of her great joy. And the third story is the story of a lost son. You may have heard it more termed this way, the story of the prodigal son. The story of the lost son goes like this. There's a father who has two sons, and the younger takes the early inheritance And he goes and he spends it on wild living, on sinful living, and leaves home. Unlike the wandering sheep or the coin, which didn't know that it was lost, the son chose to leave, breaking his father's heart with his departure. Finally, the son hits rock bottom and musters the courage to return home. And in a story of beautiful grace, there's the father not only longing for the son to return, but as he sees the son a far way off, runs to go and embrace the son upon his return. And what happens next in the story has captured the hearts and minds of millions, and it's just such a gift that Jesus gave to us. When this wild and rebellious son who ripped his father's heart out by going and living a sinful lifestyle repented, and the word repent just means to turn, turned back home, came home, he met a loving father's embrace. And not only that, but a giant party was thrown for the son. I don't want to boil down Jesus' parables to one lesson because that's the beauty of a story is that there's, there's so many lessons built in there. But don't you hear this message to us today? Here it is. The lost, whether it's a sheep, a coin, or a son, represent a sinner who repents. Some are snatched out of a pig slop as they chose to run full away from God. Some are snatched almost not even knowing that they were lost. Some just kind of wandered away from the flock at some point. But every one of those lost is a sinner who repents and thereby is found. And catch the theme running through all three of those. There is much joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And that's the common theme that we see. When that which is lost is found, there's a party going on in heaven. That's the picture of the mercy of Easter. God's heart towards you is love. God's heart towards you is mercy. In fact, He loves you so much that He will actually discipline you and steer you and pursue you. The question for us today is, will we humble ourselves? Will we repent? Listen to Romans 2.4. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that, this, that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Friends, my, my invitation to you today is quite simple. If you hear the voice of the shepherd calling you, if you hear the voice of Jesus calling you, respond to it today. The way that you do that is as simple as believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repenting, that just means turning from your life and turning toward God. Do you need to come and talk to a pastor or need to, talk to come and talk to a church member? You don't need to, but I would encourage it just to say, hey, pray with me. I'm a Christian today because I've trusted on the Lord Jesus Christ. After that, I would say, take the Bible. If you don't have one, you've got one already offered to you. Just take it and just begin to read it. 
I would steer you to the book of 1 John or the Gospel of John. Those are, those are two great starting points for you. This local church here, potentially in your neighborhood, is a, is a, church, is a, is a church full of people who, who are on the journey with you, who are here saying, we've, we've tasted and seen that, that God is good. And like many others before us, we've simply turned and trusted on the finished work of Christ. The song we're about to sing takes the gospel, the story of the gospel, and again, puts it to song. I want you to to sing along if you'd like and you're comfortable. Otherwise, just listen to it sung. And um, I'm going to pray as we close. Father, I thank you for this morning and the joy of Easter. I pray, God, that you would take the truths that you long for us to know, that we would see clearly about you. I thank you, God, that your kingdom isn't just about talk. It isn't just about superficial, metaphorical talk. But it's actually about power and about real things. And you demonstrated over and over with your people deliverance. And you came in and invaded their life. Pray that you would do the same to us, God. We're weak and we're frail this morning. And some of us, God, are are dragging in here from a brutal week. Would you meet us where we are? Would you help us to see how you and the good news of the cross and the resurrection applies to our relationships and marriages and our schoolwork and our career choice and those fears that are haunting us, God. We love you and praise you. And as we sing now, I pray that it would exalt you, Jesus, and the work that you did on the cross. We celebrate not only the day you rose from the grave, but the day that you're coming back. In Jesus' name, amen.